scripture is from Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go through the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep as at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise, or I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Appreciate uh, uh, the emails that a number of you have sent this week as we've begun this journey together, and also especially a number of the laments that you've been working on. Um, one of you uh, remarked something that I thought was very interesting. You said, um, I think our church, the church, knows how to handle cancer better than we know how to handle depression. And as I thought about it, and actually we talked a little bit about it, I, I think I understand what, what she means. We all obviously hate both. We hate it when someone we know and love gets cancer, and we certainly don't feel like we've mastered how to deal with it. But we, we know how to talk about it, and we know how to mow yards and, and get food and, and uh, talk about treatment outcomes and all that stuff. But depression in the church is different. And I found that even in my own experiences, I've tried to think about how to talk about this tonight. We sometimes are embarrassed when we struggle with depression. Um, we don't really know how to love a friend who is depressed. Um, we've been on the internet enough to get totally confused. Um, we know that depression may be a form of mental illness, but we don't know exactly what that means, and if that means we should treat them differently. Um, we hear about chronic depression and bipolar depression and episodic depression. We hear different people say different things about taking medicine for depression. Uh, we've heard horror stories about saying the wrong thing to a depressed person. And so often we're paralyzed as we think about the topic of depression. 
When I first started working on this series um, last summer and circulating some ideas among the preaching team, originally I, I thought we might spend uh, the entire Lenten series uh, looking at depression and what God's Word says about it. Um, I personally struggled with depression in the, the 90s for a period. Uh, it's something significant to me that I feel vulnerable to. Uh, I think uh, maybe one out of four people that I get to talk with in my office is struggling in some way with depression. Uh, I've also found that those of us that are trying to, to live, if you're trying to live with someone who's depressed, that itself can be depressing. Um, and so I thought, well, that might be a good subject. Um, and I began to read broadly about depression. I started with the Joshua Schink's Lincoln's Melancholy. Uh, it was a very interesting book. Andrew Solomon's The Noonday Demon. I read William Styron's Darkness Visible. John Piper's When the Darkness Will Not Lift. I looked at D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' Spiritual Depression, Kathleen Green McCrate's Darkness is My Only Companion, Archibald Hart's Unmasking Male Depression, Barbara Crafton's Jesus Wept, and then a, a fascinating book by Kay Redfield called Touched by Fire that explores the relationship of depression to the artistic temperament. And one of the things I found is that reading about depression can become depressing. <laughs> and I thought... It, Lent is hard enough uh, without beer, and if, you, if, if we talk for six weeks about uh, depression, Jesse and I may be the only people left by Good Friday. So I, I thought that might be a bit much. I also realized I'm not trained uh, to talk about depression psychologically. Uh, I'm trained to, to teach, teach the scripture, and so instead we decided to focus on the Psalms of Lament. And these psalms, as we said last week, reveal how God's people work through suffering towards God. A couple of them deal specifically with what we might call depression. And Psalm 42 is one of them. Um, It says at the top on the note that this is a psalm written by the sons of Korah. And they were a group of priests that led worship in the temple. And it says that uh, it's a maskal, which is a Hebrew word meaning to instruct. And so evidently what had happened is uh, someone, we don't really know who, uh, went through a period of depression and wrote a psalm, a poem, about how they moved through depression towards God. And uh, the worship team would occasionally sing it as a way to instruct the people in how to move through God in depression, or move towards God in depression. And what I want to do tonight is look a little bit about at this, this man's depression and how he moves through it. I realize uh, that this is a delicate subject. Uh, I realize that it's very easy to oversimplify, and I, I don't intend to do that. One of the things, if you take some time to look at this psalm this week, you'll notice it's a lot less clean than last week's. Last week's had three neat movements. Uh, petition, prayer, praise, or rather protest, petition, praise. There, this one doesn't work that way. This one, the guy is in a struggle all the way through, and there's no clean finish. And, and actually, that's hopeful, because that's how it's like to work through depression. <laughs> it, it does, it's not as clean and tidy as we'd like. Uh, 
But this gentleman is depressed. He says twice in the refrain of the psalm, verse 5 and verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? The Hebrew word for cast down means to sink or depress, to be brought low, to stoop. The Hebrew word for turmoil means to rage or to moan. And so his inner world, uh, his emotional state has been brought low. Uh, There's a sense in which he he can hardly stand up under the burden of it. The the pain is so intense that he wants to to rage about this. Uh, He's not the only biblical writer that has felt that way. Job laments, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I'll speak of the bitterness of my soul. In Psalm 88, maybe may even a, a darker psalm of, about depression, the psalmist there says, I've become like one who has no strength. I'm lost among the dead. You have laid me in the depths of the pit, in dark places. I'm in prison and I cannot get free. He says in, in, in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. So there, there's a sense in which... Uh, He is emotionally on the edge. He's constantly finding himself uh, tearing up and and weeping. He says, all your breakers in his prayer to God, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's using this metaphor of, of drowning underneath waves of suffering that seem mysteriously pulled upon him by the tidal forces of God's mysterious hand. I was talking with one of you this week about about a depression that you had after uh, uh, your marriage collapsed. And and, and, uh, I wrote in my journal later what you said. You said that it was so painful that you felt paralyzed and overwhelmed and could not put two thoughts together. And that may be what the psalmist is feeling. The psalmist also says, why do I go mourning? Depression is almost always about loss. It's about grief. It it can be about losing the things that we thought would bring us joy. But what has he lost? Well, apparently he's he's lost his job, first of all. Uh, Or at least uh, he's not as... Well, I think we could put it that way. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a whole multitude-keeping festival. He evidently was a worship leader in Jerusalem, and it was his job uh, to, to lead the people of God towards praise. And he loved it, and he remembered meeting God in powerful ways during that period. But something's happened. We don't know what happened Uh, Later in the psalm, it says that he lives in Jordan now near Mount Hermon, which is up to the north. So somehow he has been pushed out of worship in the temple area and moved to the north. And he no longer has a purpose. He no longer has that that sacred sense of leading the people of God into God's presence. And, And he's also lost the sense of being in God's presence. Now, the opening lines of this song... As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? That 
strikes us as this lovely, intimate, beautiful picture. It's inspired our songs. We love to cross-stitch it or put it under posters of sunsets. He didn't mean it that way. Uh, Imagine this, a desert uh, where this emaciated young deer with, with her ribs sticking out stumbles out of last resort looking for water towards a stream bed, knowing if she doesn't get water, she will die. And when she finally makes it to the stream bed, it's dried up. And now she knows she's going to die. That's what he means. He wasn't trying to give us something for a coffee cup. He's saying, I need you so badly, God, but I'm at a place in my life right now where I, I can't taste you at all. I remember it in the past, but right now I just can't taste you in any way. And that, for Christians, can be one of the most painful parts of, of, a, of a depression, is the sense of the absence of God. Uh, C.S. Lewis, after his wife died, wrote a journal, and in, in it one day he wrote, Meanwhile, where is God? When you are happy and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you'll be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all their help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. So the psalmist is depressed, um, but the psalm is about more than that. The the psalm is about how he moves through his depression towards God. And and I want to observe uh, three practices that he makes as he moves towards God. And again, I'm not trying to oversimplify this. I'm not saying, here are three steps, and if you do it, you can have this figured out by dinner. Uh, But I I do want to, to, to point out there's three very practical things that he does in this struggle to move towards God in his depression. And the first is he reflects. He, he slows down enough to, to look at his inner life. Uh, in verse 5, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? He, he stops to pay attention to his interior world. And, and I think for many of us, this is the first step that we should take to deal with any depression that we're struggling with, and that is simply to slow down enough to reflect on our life enough to notice that we're depressed. (laughs) Now, obviously, if you're in a major clinical depression and you're totally shut down, you know that. But there are times in our life when we are being good soldiers and good Americans and we're playing through pain and all the cliches you want to throw on this, and we've gone numb, we've had little joy, we've been far from God for a while, but we've not slowed down enough to say, my soul is depressed. So the first practice is, is to reflect. Uh, now, one of the things that may have happened if you haven't done that is you may have developed strategies to deal with the pain. Because we will deal with this. Uh, You may shop too much on the internet, you may look at pornography, Uh, you may drink a few too many beers on a few too many nights. There's lots of ways that we numb the pain. 
But the problem with, with not slowing down enough to pay attention to your own soul to determine whether or not you are depressed is that God uses pain to point out problems. And if you just always medicate or numb your pain, and you never slow down enough to, to see that actually your soul is downcast, then you, can't, you don't have the opportunity to see that something's wrong in your life. And you miss an opportunity to bless and be blessed. So, the first thing that you might do uh, in moving towards depression towards God is just to reflect on your life and look for these symptoms that the psalmist describes. And Lynn is a good time to do this. Do I feel that God doesn't listen or care for me? Do I often feel on the verge of tears? Have I experienced a significant loss? And have I grieved it well? Do I constantly feel overwhelmed by wave after wave of problems and responsibilities? Do I continually feel restless, disquieted, unsettled, and anxious? So pay attention this Lent. Reflect. Now, the second practice is he remembers. He says, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. Now, what does he remember during his his time of depression? He says, I remember that by day the Lord commands his steadfast love for me. Now, what is he doing here? Well, he can't feel God right now. God feels very far away from him. Uh, his emotions are totally stirred up. He's in a very dark place. But he still has enough resource to choose to remember God's steadfast love. And that, that's the Hebrew word hesed, which is the Old Testament word for grace. And essentially what he's doing is he's going back and remembering all that he's learned in Scripture, after all those hours in the temple and in the tabernacle, after all the psalms that he's sung, after all the times listening to Torah read, he's going back, and even though he feels none of this, he's making a choice, and he's saying, I'm going to remember that God's fundamental orientation towards me is hesed, it's love, it's grace. I'm going to choose to remember that. That's not easy to do when we're depressed. But that's what he does. And and that, by the way, is one of the reasons why careful Bible study, devotional, spiritual, prayerful Bible study, immersing yourself in the Scriptures is so important because there will come a time when you don't have the spiritual energy to access those truths. And you will have to go back to the foundation you laid before. I realized I was depressed one night after a board meeting. Um, when I, I left late and I, I got in my car and I could not remember how to turn it on. And my mind had just, uh, just kind of cracked a bit and I uh, eventually did. Uh, looking back on it, I didn't know what to do about it. I was embarrassed. I told other than my wife, I told one person in the church and hit it. Um, started counseling, didn't finish it. 
Uh, I just finished my doctorate. We just finished a building program, and Bryden had just finished chemotherapy. And it all came together in a perfect storm and uh, collapsed. I could not assimilate the word of God. God seemed a million miles away from me, and all I had was the foundations that had been poured through many years of scripture study before. So I understand that there are times in depression when you just can't read the word of God. I understand that. Um, Sometimes you just have to let God carry you. But when you begin to get some energy back, when you begin to get capacity again, one of the things I'd plead with you to do is reflect in the word, read the scripture about God's character, about his gracious character towards you, uh, his sovereignty, his plans for your life. Because the only way you get through depression is to have hope. When you're depressed, you feel that there is no hope. And the hope is not in your circumstances changing, because many times they don't. The hope is in the character of God. So that's why we have to go back to him. Now, the third practice that the psalmist goes through, and this one will take a little bit of unpacking, and it could be misunderstood, so let me be careful with it. The first was reflect, look at your life, determine whether or not you are depressed. The second is remember, remember God's hesed, his grace, so that you can have hope. The third practice is to repent. I want to be careful here. Um, Let me try to unpack that for us. The psalmist tells himself twice, hope in God, after he's talked about his life kind of falling apart. He tells himself, hope in God, trust in God, depend fully on God. And I think one of the implications is that he hadn't been. Now, I know God used depression in my life, and I don't think it's always this way, but God showed me through my own depression, that I was not hoping in him alone. He used depression to reveal idolatry in my life. Um, I had figured out that I was going to find life in several places. I thought, for one thing, that education would bring it, that when I got my doctorate, I would be satisfied and happy. I, I believed that when we build a bigger church, a big church building... I'd be satisfied and happy. I believe that when we had a family, I'd be satisfied and happy. But the doctorate wasn't very fulfilling. I was just exhausted. The church building just meant more people came. We had to build another one. And then my daughter having cancer meant it all could go away. And it it just all came undone. Looking back, I think God was showing me that my hope was not in him, but in lesser gods. And so depression became a gift, an invitation for me to repent from trying to hope in the wrong places. Uh, Last summer, uh, when I was beginning to prepare for this, I wrote a a friend, a wise spiritual director who's a pastor in Indiana, and I, I asked him for advice on preaching a series, which at the time I was going to call Overcoming Depression. And here was his response. He says, I would tweak your direction a bit and not make it about overcoming depression. 
but rather about walking through depression in a productive sense. And then he says, unless chemically induced, I believe depression is anger with a loss of hope. A block goal leads to anger, and when the block goal reaches a point of hopelessness, the depression is the result. You know, that's what I found in in my own life. Uh, When I realized, you mean building a building doesn't really make me feel fulfilled? Matter of fact, it leaves me with debt and a new building I have to build? You mean having a family doesn't make me fulfilled? You mean my child could die? You mean having a doctorate doesn't make me fulfilled? I've been working on this for years. Depression came when the things I was looking to for hope failed me. He says, this is simplistic, I know, but a realistic initial understanding of depression. Depression has the potential to expose our sin, but even more, to reveal something deeper, more alive at our core. Depression might actually be a gift said or explained carefully. Now, again, I want to say some depression clearly is chemically induced. Uh, I don't think you're supposed to uh, repent of of having a low thyroid. Uh, And I I don't think you should repent of having low serotonin. And I, I understand that medication can definitely be needed to stabilize body chemistry, so... You can even do the kind of work that the psalmist is doing. Sometimes taking medicine is an act of humility and trust. Um, Larry Crabb, the the Christian writer and psychologist, talks about this in his book, Fully Alive. He says, um, I have no problem with Christians taking mood-elevating medication. A close friend of mine swallows a dose of Prozac every day. I judge him no more than I judge another close friend who every day takes insulin for diabetes. Prozac frees my chemically depressed friend through chemicals that help him to better fight the battle raging in every Christian soul, the battle between flesh-energized self-obsession and spirit-releasing God-obsession, and to more fully live in the strength of his hope-filled center where Christ lives, where shalom can be tasted. I don't take my Zoloft, because I don't believe I suffer from clinical depression. But I do struggle with anti-shalom, with biblical groaning, that every self-aware Christian will feel until the day Jesus returns and makes everything right. I regard my angst, which sometimes expresses itself in acedia, not as a symptom of pathology, but as evidence of growing maturity of facing the reality within me and in the world that something is wrong with everything. So delicate tension there. Uh, But I think even the best secular research would suggest that even when you are on medication for depression, there are still soul issues, emotional issues, we would say spiritual issues, that you need to pay attention to. And I think the best uh, secular cycle or therapist would say the medicine is not the, the ultimate solution. The medicine is to try to give you two hands to fight with. Okay? Now, one of the most painful aspects of um, this gentleman's journey is, is this person he calls the enemy. And 
the enemy will come up a lot in the lament psalms. Um, he's never really defined, and he becomes kind of a symbol for whoever is hurting me at the time. And this enemy is taunting him with his words. He says, where's your God? Um, the, the psalmist says that the words of this enemy cause a deadly wound in his bone. Now, sometimes uh, the enemies of a depressed person are those who love her the most and want to help her the most. Uh, sometimes the enemies of a depressed person, the person that hurts them, um, is the mother, the father, the wife, the daughter, the friends who, who really love them and want them to snap out of it. And so they try everything they can to think of uh, to make him feel better, and nothing seems to work, and everybody gets frustrated. So what do you say to a depressed person? Um, that, is, that is an interesting question. If you Google that, you'll get six things to say, eight things to say, 12 things to say, four things not to say. Everybody has a different opinion about what you should and shouldn't say. What I've found, when I ask people who've been depressed, what helped you when you were depressed many of them say different things. Uh, so it, it doesn't appear that we can come up with, here are the five things to say. Imagine that. Uh, that's maybe not that helpful. Let me just offer a couple of guidelines before we move towards a conclusion. If, you, if, you're, if you're with a depressed person, first, less is more. Uh, you may not need to say anything. Wasn't that the lesson of the book of Job? Many times just being there is enough. Second, the more relationship you have, the more you have a right to speak. Uh, probably very few people ought to say anything to someone in depression. Maybe there's one or two who have earned that right and only at the right time. Third, be patient and listen more than you talk. Uh, depression can take a long time to work through, and exhorting to snap out of it doesn't help. And fourth, focus on their needs and not your own. Too often when we offer words of advice, it's because we need to feel that we've helped. And a lot of times I find that the, the counsel I give comes more out of anxiety and frustration and a need to feel competent than a real love for the person or a discerning of what the Spirit's doing in the person's life. When you do speak, trust in the Spirit, follow His lead, and encourage them to hope in God. One thing that is not helpful is to say, you know you're going to get through this and everything's going to be okay. You know, there's one thing you as a human being can never say to another human being. <laughs> I know everything's going to be okay. Well, eternally, yes, but that's not what they hear. Don't, I see this all the time in hospitals, all the time in tragedy. Hey, it's, going to, it's all going to work out. Just you wait. It doesn't all work out. It doesn't until we get there. So don't say it's going to all work out. Encourage them to hope in God. And these conversations are so important when we go through these things. I've been surprised at how many people have been deeply wounded by counsel that was misdirected. Everybody means well. And 
and, and I, I, Larry Crabb talks about this distinction between spiritual friends and spiritual directors. And one of the things that a spiritual friend does is these five things that we just talked about, being present, listening, kind of that. But there's also a place for a spiritual director, and that would be uh, usually an older person, a wiser person, a person who's very sensitive to the spirit, trained in the dynamics of the soul, that can help you walk through what got you into the depression. They can help you kind of work through the spiritual dynamics, the, the, maybe the, the places that you need to repent. And, and that takes a, a gifted person. And so a healthy church has both uh, good spiritual friends and wise spiritual directors. When, when I uh, wrote my friend in Indiana last summer about this series, he did send me this, to this book called Lincoln's Melancholy, how Depression Challenged a President and Fueled His Greatness. And it was a very interesting look at how for Abraham Lincoln, in this historian's perspective, he actually figured out a way to embrace his depression and make him stronger. And for him, it wasn't just a problem that crippled him, but it actually was a painful gift that made him ready for the challenge he faced. And, and I think that's why my friend encouraged me, don't call this series Overcoming Depression. As if depression's a problem, here's three steps, you get over it and you're done. Maybe depression, or at least some depression, is just part of the sadness of living in a fallen world. Maybe being somewhat sad some of the time is normal. Uh, I know my temperament is one that's prone towards this. Uh, I've not been seriously depressed in 15 years, but I, I know I have a tendency towards it. It's a part of my temperament that I do not like at all. It's the part that I would change uh, and yet, I think one of the things I'm learning is that perhaps God has formed me this way uh, as a gift and not just as punishment. The last section of that book on Lincoln begins like this. In his mid-40s, the dark soil of his melancholy began to bear fruit. When Lincoln threw himself into the fight against the extension of slavery, the same qualities that had long brought him so much trouble played a role in his great work. The suffering he had endured lent him clarity, discipline, and faith in hard times, perhaps especially in hard times. It was not what we would call a recovery, and certainly not what we would call a cure. Lincoln's story confounds those who see suffering as a collection of symptoms to be eliminated, but it resonates with those who see suffering as a potential catalyst for emotional growth. So essentially what he's saying is that Abraham Lincoln struggled seriously with depression. I never fully kind of cured it, but was able to fashion it in such a way that it strengthened him for the role he played in American history. The laments that several of you wrote and sent to me last week were some of the most moving things I've 
I've read since we've been here. Um, and perhaps you you will want to write a a psalm of lament for your own depression this week. And you could use the, the outline we used last week. You could begin by protesting. You could write about how you feel, about how you don't feel, about what your depression is like. And then you could move to petition. You could ask God to restore your joy, to restore your sense of his presence, to restore your emotional stability, to give your soul peace. And then you could praise him. You could express your hope in God and perhaps your repentance from the lesser gods who your depression has stripped you of. Let's pray.